Welcome to Sound the Foghorn. My name is Mark DeLuke. I'm very excited for this second episode of this restart. I'm joined today by a guest I'm very excited to talk with. It's Jen Ramos. They do great work in R&D over at Baseball Prospectus and with the Youth Leadership Institute. They've written for a number of sites over the years with a particular focus on the California League and remain a highly recommended follow on Twitter at Jen Mac Ramos. Jen, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for inviting me. So I know you were mostly focused on the Giants during the regular season. Obviously, they did not make it to the postseason. Have you been watching most of the postseason? And has there been any sort of takeaway from there? Anything that stand out? Yeah, I've been watching just about every postseason game that I can get my hands on, you know, doing like the whole uh, split screen thing when there were the eight games going on. So very, very familiar with the postseason. Um, I would say one of the things that has stood out to me is the championship series and how that's been going and how the Rays are the best team in the AL and they're facing the Astros who are below 500 and the Astros are kind of clawing back there. That's been very interesting also with Atlanta and the Dodgers in the National League Championship Series. Very interested in seeing how the Dodgers will be approaching another game where they are facing elimination. Yeah, um, we're recording this on Saturday morning, early afternoon-ish, depending where you are. So games on Saturday, we'll, we're, we don't know the results of those yet. But currently, there's obviously going to be a Game 7 between the Astros and Rays. And looking at Game 6 is the Dodgers are up 3-2, or excuse me, down 3-2 to the Atlanta Braves. I'm curious, what's your thoughts? And uh, I talked about this last week on the podcast regarding the expand postseason format. I think seeing the Astros now a win away from making it to the World Series is kind of part of, I guess, the point, you know, in what people were critical of is that, I mean, obviously the Astros have the history. They've won the World Series in the past and all that, you know, controversy and trash cans aside. But, you know, they're ultimately a team that finished below 500 and they're, they could make it to the World Series. How do you feel about that as a fan? Um, I feel like in general, I, as a fan, I am not happy with the Astros making it this far just because of the cheating scandal and the mm-hmm. fact that they're trying to make themselves out to be the underdog, the team that no one likes that everyone should really root for because they are the underdog when the reason that a lot of people don't like them is because they're known cheaters. So I don't like the narrative that they are creating for themselves there because it's a false narrative. Mm-hmm. That being said, I do like this playoff format because of the chaos that it creates. And I think that Major League Baseball has done so much to make itself not as fun as it could be. And I think this expanded playoff format, especially in such a weird year, is kind of the chaos that not necessarily deserve, but they need. That's a a good point. I've been pretty critical of it myself just because I do kind of feel like the difference between like basketball and baseball to me, right, is that generally the better talented teams win. But I think there is an argument for that too, right? That, you know, ultimately the goal isn't necessarily for the best team to win the World Series. The goal is for the most fans to be engaged, right? And the goal is for, you know, the sport to be more popular, hypothetically, from the league's perspective. I do think it's funny about the Astros is that they're, like you mentioned, trying to pull this no one believed in us narrative. And when the reality is the narrative was really never no one believed in them. It's just no one liked them after the news came out about the scandal. Yeah, no, it, and it's 
you know, justifiably so because they cheated. They spread out ways to try and steal signs and they banged on trash cans. (laughs) You know, that it's not that no one likes them because of like personalities on the team because they don't like certain players on the team or they just don't like the Houston Astros. It's because they're cheaters, which I feel like if you're taking away the Astros from that conversation, the playoffs as a whole has been extremely chaotic and extreme. And there have been a lot of fun games in it, such as Yankees raise ALDS going five games. And you don't know whether or not the Yankees are going to best the Rays, especially since there is that kind of beef between them from the season. And then to have, Brasso hit the home the game-winning home run off Aroldis Chapman after Aroldis Chapman threw at Mike Brasso's head. That's the kind of excitement and the actual narrative that the game needs right now. Yeah, no, I think that's a perfect way of putting it. And I think, you know, talking about excitement, I think it's sort of a, a good time to switch gears a bit because it's something that I think most fans wouldn't necessarily consider very Exciting, but you know, since you are someone more focused on minor league baseball, you've done a lot of work in the California league, and obviously the minor league season this year was canceled. You know, partially, you know, I mean, due to the pandemic and the leagues not wanting to deal with the complications of that. And you know, I think we'd both be in agreement that was the right decision. But in a world where you know, if this pandemic, if COVID nineteen doesn't cause this, you know, what would you tell fans who? aren't necessarily following prospects very closely or don't really know a lot about player development. What did we lose without a minor league season this year? Player development. Mm-hmm. You, you lost player development, players being able to develop. That's, that's like the main thing you're losing player development. Yeah. And going forward, I mean, obviously it's all speculation at this point, but I do wonder if we're going to start seeing sort of some weird aging curves over the next few years as sort of we have this stalled year of minor league baseball. I'm curious, what do you think the effects are going to be on potentially the big league game over the the next few seasons? I mean, I don't necessarily think that a lost season is going to be like the biggest impact on the future of baseball. It's going to be the state of minor league baseball as a whole. I feel like this is just a small symptom of a larger problem in MLB. And, you know, while there were intra-squad games at alternate training sites and stuff, so, like, there are some minor leaguers who are able to get reps, especially the ones who are highly ranked in the system. So it's not necessarily like they lost out completely on development, but I don't think one lost season is as impactful as many people make it out to be. Because it going to be part of a larger problem within minor league baseball as a whole and it's just kind of like starting to bubble on the surface with a lost year yeah and you know sort of i think along those lines again we've seen if you're if you follow i highly recommend looking at jj cooper over at baseball america who's probably done some of the best work i've seen um on this covering that this pandemic has happened to coincide in some ways perfectly for Major League Baseball because by suspending the minor league season, it gave them even more time to stall out negotiations with minor league ball that now is pretty much going to be absorbed into the big league umbrella. You know, I, I don't want to get too into the weeds of it for this podcast because, again, I recommend checking out his work. He was on Roger Munchers, um, there are Giants podcast a few weeks ago. But, you know, for fans, right, the 
the structure of minor league baseball is not going to be next year what we've seen if you've gotten accustomed to it. Yeah, no, minor league baseball is never going to be the same again. And I feel like, if anything, the pandemic just kind of sped it up. Yeah. And perhaps tied in with that, I think it's worth mentioning, we had news break yesterday, or I should say it was, I guess, an announcement from the Giants that they are now, they laid off about 10% of their full-time staff. It's the first full-time employees they laid off, and it's important to make that distinction because they also laid off a bunch of event staff when the pandemic first started hitting. I believe it was in June. Um, But this is the first full-time cuts we've seen, about 10%. um, According to Andrew Baggerly over The Athletic, his reporting, the majority of the cuts are in player development, perhaps could be tied in with the knowledge that there's going to be fewer teams next year, and so there's going to be coaching fewer coaching spots available going forward. I mean, it's not just coaches that are being laid off. I mean, player development is not just on-field staff. There's a lot that go into it. And this is nothing new. Like, MLB teams have been laying off player development staff all across baseball. Like, this is just just another part of it. Mm-hmm. Could you sort of get more into the weeds of it, just, you know, for people who, who are sort of interested in that behind the scenes, what sort of, you know, coaches or the on-field people, the ones we see, you know, scouting staffs we've seen get cut as well. Are there any sort of, what are sort of the other aspects going on? I mean, player development is such a broad range of different things. It could be mental skills, it could be analytics, it could be scouts. So it's, it's hard to say, like, what exactly that comprises of when every team has a different aspect and different approach of player development. So when it, when people say it's player development staff, like you're going to have to think more also in the front office and not just on field staff. Mm. So on the major league side of things, you, you know, at least from following you, it seemed like you were very well tapped in with the giants um, big league side this season. What were and they finished year 29-31, a tiebreak loss away from making the last spot in the postseason, which I think everyone has pointed out to, at nauseum at this point. But it's true, they would have gotten to face off against the Dodgers for the first time in either franchise's history. Which, again, as you mentioned, the chaos of this playoff structure, it would have been a very fun time. But, you know, of what we did get to see, what were some of the biggest positive takeaways and maybe the concerns going forward for the team that, you got from watching it? I mean, this season was never really going to be an actual competitive season no matter what. It was just the nature of the expanded playoffs that gave them a shot. In a typical season, they would not even be in the conversation of whether or not they could be like the second wild card. I guess takeaways from the season is that it really exposes what their weak spots are and what they need, what holes they need to fill in the the roster construction there's also a lot of conversations about bullpen management and how there's no established rules for certain relievers this year was never supposed to be competitive I don't think that it actually was it was just kind of like maybe there's a chance but I didn't really see it um it's supposed to be a rebuilding year, and that was very clear from the product on the field. They're filling in gaps at the moment with veterans and minor league free agents and like minor league contracts and guys coming up from AAA. 
And it's one of those things where, like, okay, develop whoever is available in the farm system and hope that they're ready sooner than later and address the holes that they need to fill. But this team is not going to be competitive for a while. I don't see their window being open for a while. It's like they're they're kind of back at square one a bit. Yeah, and I think it's especially difficult to foresee competitiveness just if you look at the division, right? The fact is the Dodgers and Padres don't look like they're going anywhere at all. Yeah, no, and the Padres system is so deep that like even with all the trades that they made this trade deadline, they still did not lose their greatest prospects. They still have Mackenzie Gore. They're able to trade a guy who is like their 20th guy, and that 20th guy could be like a number 10 somewhere else, a number 5 somewhere else. So that's how deep and how good the Padre system is. I've always seen that the Padres window is going to be from like 2020 to 2026 because of how deep that system is and Mackenzie Core is not even up yet and he is just very great so it's gonna be Dodgers and Padres for a long time especially with the Dodgers signing Mookie Betts to that long contract like Mookie Betts deserves to get paid and he did and he's doing it with a team that is aware of how great he is and the rest of the team is as great. So Giants don't really have a shot for a while. So it's like, why not just actually rebuild and draft and develop? Yeah. And I think the other thing is, you know, even with a team like the Padres, you know, they are a small market team, no doubt, but they've even shown some willingness to spend over the past few seasons. And, you know, with a contract, like I know they have Will Myers, I think he's making around 20 or 25 million a year. His contract's going to expire relatively soon around when, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr. comes up for free agency. And so, you know, the Dodgers obviously have the money to keep the guys they want to if they believe a core is strong enough to continue spreading their competitive window. But even a team like the Padres, now granted, perhaps the future of the finances and how off-seasons function in minor league baseball could be, or major league baseball, excuse me, could be up for a lot of change. But I think it's also fair to say that these are organizations that seem to have at least some willingness to also keep those big pieces around long term and speaking of those top prospects you know Giants fans did get to see one of theirs reach the major leagues this year in Joey Bart and because you are so tapped into the California League you're probably one of the people who'd seen the most of him prior to his big league debut since pretty much he had a cup of coffee at double a a couple weeks to play at the Arizona Fall League but really the Cal League has been the majority of his experience I'd be curious obviously you're seeing guys at high a I imagine it's a bit weird to see a guy at high A and then he's in the major leagues the next season. What were sort of your expectations when he made that jump? And, you know, how did what you see compare to what you'd seen the previous season with the San Jose Giants? I mean, it's not not at all strange to see a guy in high A one year and then see him in the major leagues next year. That's actually very common. It's especially with a top prospect like Joey Bart, that's actually very, very common so it's not really surprising to me, especially with a guy who's that highly ranked in the system. He did lose a lot of time because of two hand injuries, one coming in the California League and one coming at Arizona Fall League that ended his, his Fall League play. Yeah, he's just a 
top tier catching prospect. I wouldn't say that he's necessarily the second coming of Buster Posey just yet, but it's um, very typical player development for Joey Bart. And yes, he did lose a lot of playing time, but again, at the same time, like he did have spring training. He did have summer camp. He did get some reps in to kind of have him adjust to major league baseball this year. And again, you know, the only reason that the Giants actually had a shot is because of the expanded playoffs. But it was also clear that having Joey Bart start was going to be a large improvement over Tyler Heineman and Chadwick Trump. Yeah, definitely. He stepped in. That was, I guess, the one thing I was surprised to see that he seemed to early on actually get, it's, I don't know if comfortable is the right word, but, you know, he was squaring the ball up pretty consistently early on. And then it seemed like as the season went on, as pitchers sort of continued to attack him inside, especially up and in with fastballs, that was sort of where um, he struggled the most. I mean, that's going to be a typical struggle for any rookie coming up. It's ma- learning how to make major league adjustments. Um, they're obviously used to making adjustments in the minor leagues and trying to figure out the different style of play in different leagues with different teams. Um, and, you know, with Joey Bart coming up, that that's going to be a typical thing for rookies. They're, you know, they're going to be able to, uh, they're going to have to be able to learn to make the adjustments at the major league level and figuring out like, okay, well, this pitcher has this, how am I going to approach him? Um, so what we saw with Joey Bart and how he was able to, how he was able to attack pitchers in the first place and then kind of cooling down a bit, that's a pretty typical regression in major leagues for rookies. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the season and, you know, about sort of the on-field product or the on-field implications of, again, the cancellation of minor league ball, but also, you know, for the Giants and what we've seen in the postseason. But I kind of would like to take a step back, you know, and I think it's something that a lot of people covering it and around the game haven't necessarily known how to interact with or haven't necessarily been super comfortable discussing. And it's, you know, there is a real pandemic going on and, and it is the largest one you know, of definitely of this century, and you go back till probably 1918, over 100 years ago, you know, how have you felt about this MLB season, just given um, that aspect of it, and even the social implications of what's been going on, both around the country, and we talk about, you know, the executive branch of government, but also um, following the killing of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd by police officers and protests, um, that are really rebellions that swept over the country. You know, how have you felt? Have you felt differently about this season? Um, and, you know, what's that been like for you, I guess? I mean, I'm of the mindset that no one should be leaving their house and sports should absolutely not be played. Um, there's, a, there's a difference, especially if there's a safe way to do it, such as the NBA bubble or the NHL bubble. Um, MLB and NFL are obviously some of the more unsafe quote-unquote bubbles, especially with uh, this quote-unquote playoff bubble that MLB is trying to institute. But, you know, sure, let's have fans in the ballpark in a bubble. Um, It should not be played at all, I don't think. Um, And especially, you know, with college football now happening and the fact that there are fans in the stands, and that's going to 
lead to a lot of outbreaks. Um, I mean, my my entire feeling of it is that it should not be happening. A lot of things should not be happening. People should not be leaving their houses. People, unless it's like for a legitimate, necessary, essential reason, especially if they're essential workers or if you know they have to go for out for medical reasons. Just you know, nothing extraneous that should not be happening. Um, that being said, also with the uprisings, you know, sports does take away from the focus being on the uprisings. But at the same time, you know, there has been action taken by sports, such as when the Milwaukee Bucks striked. Um, So there are good things that can come from sports because um, as I learned in a grad school class when I was um, at USCJ school, um, it was a class about sports and society. One thing that I took away from that is that while society can influence sports, sports can also influence society. Um, Sports are a mirror to what's going on in society. So the reason that we're seeing everything opening up is because it's mirroring everything in the world opening up. Well, not the world, but the United States. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just merely mirroring what's going on in the world. And if we had a competent government, we had a competent society who was actually listening to science, you know, we wouldn't have sports. We wouldn't have all these outbreaks going on. And I know in California, where I'm based, um, numbers are going down. But as soon as numbers go down, people want to open things up. And that's where the surge is going to go. And they open up college campuses for college football. Numbers are going to go up. So sports should not be played. But there are some things that kind of point out everything wrong going on in society because of sports. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Is that right? It is very much acting as a mirror. And I think it's, I mean, I'm honestly been surprised, and I don't know if successful is the word, but I'm honestly surprised that they got this far. And I don't know whether I mean that as a compliment or whether it's just an indictment on how much like money is impacting the impact of these this pandemic, right? And that I think there's also something that's been you know, frankly, kind of saddening for me to see because, you know, you you saw that, like anyone who saw the numbers saw what epidemiologists were saying at the time when these things got started, especially Major League Baseball, pretty much almost ensured that this wasn't something that seemed sustainable in any way where, again, there were three outbreaks. And I don't want to minimize the impact that those outbreaks had both on the teams, on the people impacted and all that. But frankly, that it wasn't something that you know got to the point where half the league was at risk. And I don't necessarily know how I feel if that's something to credit the league or if it's something, again, that says if you had the money to get a lot of testing, you had the money you know, to do a lot of things and take precautions that aren't necessarily options for everyday people. And I feel like that's been something that's been, I guess, somewhat illuminating too right is that again the nba can afford to do a bubble for their players and you know have zero cases at least among the players for that many months at at the same time they're also doing it in the backdrop of florida which is right having these massive outbreaks everywhere i mean it honestly it goes to show how sports are very capitalistic um even though they are a monopoly like you're not going to see another 
league, a big league like MLB in the United States. So even though they're acting as a monopoly, it's clear that they are doing a lot of these things based on capitalistic values, which all goes down to the almighty dollar. And like, why else would they have the NLCS and the World Series in Texas where standards are a bit more lax and they can have fans in the stands as opposed to California where they're like, no, we're not going to do that. Um, MLB wants the dollar and they're going to go for it and they don't care. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's sort of one thing, again, where I guess Korean is like, you know, sports is inherently political. Like, I think the the whole, you know, logic and dynamic of this is overplayed and I guess made more complicated than it is, right? It's like sports is not like separate from society. As you mentioned, it's a mirror. Like it is a part of the culture that it also feeds off of. Um, and that's, I think, where sports media in a lot of ways struggles because it, it like sports media in a lot of ways is built off tropes, right? It's built off, here are the profiles of how we talk about, you know, a team or a player coming back from an injury, but that's also, you know, why you'll see media then approach, you know, someone who, you know, gets accused of sexual assault or domestic violence, and they treat that return like it's returning from an injury or making an adjustment to a slump. And that's something I think that's similar when we talk about like the pandemic, right? It's like, it's about how the league is overcoming this thing rather than really reexamining what the problem is the league is facing and whether they should be even addressing it in this way to begin with. And I guess this is sort of perhaps a more meta conversation about media than most people are interested in, but I am genuinely curious of your thoughts, you know, where is sports media good at covering these issues and you know, where are we lacking? I mean, one of the biggest problems in sports media is that it plays into access journalism. And we see that in just about everything. There are some good stories that have come out here and there, but like that's the exception to the rule. Um, sports media, I want to say sports media completely, but at least baseball media has failed as journalism. There's so much lack of accountability being asked by a ton of writers and um especially the people who have the access to be able to ask these questions and hold people accountable. Um, There are obviously some great writers out there who have written columns that are holding people accountable, but the people who have the access who can ask these questions aren't really asking it. I mean, I think back to when the Cubs did not strike in support of Jason Hayward's decision and Anthony Rizzo was like, you know, it it sucks. Um, you know, politicians aren't going to listen, but, like, no one held him accountable for that. He's like, if you feel this way, why didn't you stand with Jason Hayward? Why didn't you strike with him? Why didn't you take a stand? Why didn't you protest? Why didn't you, you know, do some kind of action to show how fed up you actually are? Even though you're just saying it, why aren't your actions matching your words? Um, so... We don't see a lot of that in baseball media. We see a lot of people tweeting out these responses as they're happening on pressers, but no one's really asking the follow-ups that need to be asked. 
And so it's just a larger problem of access journalism as a whole, especially for beat writers, when beat writers are the ones who have the ability to ask the questions that hold them accountable. And we're not in the room. We're not in, well, the virtual room. We're not the ones who have the ability to hear all the answers. So we're not there to hear what the questions are either. So the way that beat writers are presenting it, like, we don't know what was asked. We don't know what wasn't asked. We don't know what was answered and what wasn't. But everything that comes out in the reporting kind of says, like, they didn't ask. And, yeah. and that's, that's where a lot of the problem is. And that's something that baseball media still has to reckon with because there's a lot of good columnists out there, a lot of good essayists, pointing out the problems in MLB and how MLB is covering things, but we're not actually seeing anyone doing anything about it. Mm. Yeah, I think another perfect example of this, I don't remember who the reporter was, so I won't speculate and mention the wrong name here, but it was when, and I'm still like kind of taken aback by this, when you know it was A's bench coach Ryan Christensen like post game during like the celebration of the win lineup just did a Nazi salute. And again, I, I, he didn't, as far as I know, he never faced any recourse in terms of suspension, a game, even a fine. And again, I think there's an argument that maybe even though, you know, a one game suspension wouldn't have been, but anyway. Um, and then there was a A's writer who was talking about, their friendship with Christensen and him like having a Jewish friend, I want to say, and like just all this that was like a, a, a person did just a bad thing, like just objectively, well, hopefully objectively, right? Did a bad thing. And the first instinct, like the first recourse before that even been a press conference for this reporter was to like explain it and justify it and say no, that this person's actually a good person. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's objectively a bad thing it's factually a bad thing and mm. the writer Susan Slusser with the San Francisco Chronicle who tweeted out about his friendship with someone who's Jewish which is a it's a useless excuse I mean just because a person has a Jewish friend that doesn't mean that this person is not capable of being anti-semitic like people with Jewish friends can be anti-semitic um that doesn't excuse or explain anything either. So the re- the fact that Susan Slusser said that just was completely unnecessary, offensive, and uncalled for. And that's also where the lack of accountability is because Susan Slusser has tweeted out, like, you can't pal around with these guys you cover. And it's like, well, you're, you're, tweeting, you're tweeting as if you're palling around with Ryan Christensen. So what's the deal? Where's, where's the accountability? Again, access journalism right there. Yeah, and I think you also touch on something else in that that that's this isn't just something that's happening again, you know, access journalism part of it is right, the teams and leagues often get to determine who they give access to and you know, if you're a beat writer, perhaps there's people who are again afraid of seeing their access revoked. Now again, that's not really necessarily an excuse for not holding that's not an excuse for not holding people accountable, but a reality of the situation, sort of what incentives might be in place but you kind of touched on right there there's also seems to be this self-policing among journalists that almost are critical of people from the 
quote unquote outside or from perhaps backgrounds and we can talk about the implications of that you know who maybe aren't normally in these beat writer says maybe don't have the access who are either critical or then given the access that then these people react and are somewhat like upset about whether it's cordiality or respectability or these various um you know, co- really coded language, right? Th- that sounds that and is exclusionary in how it approaches, you know, how you need to act in this space. Yeah, and I am always of the mindset that the BBWAA has done more gatekeeping and things like you have to act a certain way in order to get a BBWAA membership. You have to address people in a certain way. You have to you have to abide by all these guidelines. I mean, there's even a very gendered dress code that was in the BBWAA a while ago, and I don't know if that's changed, but they expected women to wear, like, a business cas- business formal, like, skirts and slacks and stuff like that. Very gendered as how- far as how journalists should act. And it's also like, well, why isn't there really anything about, like, you must hold people accountable, like, that doesn't seem to be something that I've seen in BBWA guidelines. It's just more like how it's very much policing, like how a journalist should act if they're a BBWA. And that's a thing. BBWAA has become one of the biggest gatekeepers in sports journalism. And we've seen that also with Chicago BBWA tweeting about another writer's question. And we've seen that a ton with Marley Rivera lately, just, making a ton of subtweets about people in New York baseball media, which is completely uncalled for and unprofessional. I mean, that's drama that people do not need to see. That's something that should be held you know, behind the scenes and addressed behind the scenes and not spill out over into public view on Twitter. But the fact that it is happening on Twitter and we are seeing that is just another symptom of how they've become the biggest gatekeeper in baseball media. And that is one of the big problems there because they're not addressing any of the issues that are actually issues. They're creating the issues and their guidelines don't really have anything to do with what's going on with the problems. They're not looking at addressing their gatekeeping problems. And we see that we see the results of that either on Twitter with subtweets from the Chicago chapter and from Marley Rivera. And we see that in the lack of accountability in daily stories. Um, so it's really all about access when BBWAA should be protecting its writers when they ask questions that hold people accountable. And I've said this before on a podcast that I was on called, uh, pretty big news where I said like one of the biggest things that the BBWAA should be doing is protecting its journalists when they ask the hard questions and making sure that their access isn't revoked. So maybe we could have a little bit less access journalism in baseball yeah no couldn't couldn't agree with you more jen thank you um for taking the time to come on and have this conversation with me anything in particular you want to take this chance to plug um just check out our work at baseball prospectus list season is coming up um i'm on the prospect team there and also i'm a member of the r&d team um, occasionally I write features, but yeah, check out the work we're doing at Baseball Prospectus. I think it's great, especially because um, we've really been amplifying marginalized voices. 
So like after the strikes happened in MLB, we've had black writers on the front page writing about writing about it and really amplifying their voices. After the Brenneman incident happened, we had LGBTQ plus writers writing about it. So I think, you know, if you're looking for a place to look for baseball news and are looking to read stuff about, you know, what's going on in baseball from marginalized voices, I think baseball perspectives have been doing a great job at it. Yeah, no, no doubt. And um, I, I do also. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say I'm proud to be staff knowing knowing that. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and I do want to take this um, moment as well. It was your birthday not too long ago, and you asked people to donate to the Youth Leadership Institute. Um, I would also like to put that out to our audience and listeners too that. Um, check out the work the Youth Leadership Institute does really all over Northern California and the Central Valley, doing a lot of um, great work, again, empowering young voices and young people um, to be active members of their community as well. That's Jen Ramos. This has been Sound the Foghorn. My name is Mark DeLuke. If you want to stay up to date with all the happenings in SF Giants baseball, check us out at aroundthefoghorn.com. You can follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. On Twitter, our handle is at roundthefoghorn. Shoot me a follow on Twitter at maddeluke. That's M-A-D-D-E-L-U-C-C-H-I. Until next Sunday, have a wonderful week. episode was produced and hosted by Mark DeLuke. All the music is courtesy 